This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to focus on the Middle East and what we might call Middle Eastern realities. The wave of populist uprisings throughout North Africa and into the Middle Eastern nations necessitates that we step back and do a reality check. What is going on? Is there a difference between what has occurred in Egypt or Tunisia, for example, and what is currently occurring in Libya? What are the available options for these nations currently undergoing turmoil? Let's examine these questions in this perspective on our program, Issues in Perspective. First of all, the columnist Tom Friedman helps us understand that there are two different types of states in the Middle East, what he calls real countries with long histories in their territory and strong national identities. Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, and even Iran come to mind. Then there are what he calls tribes with flags, many created after World War I with a myriad of tribes and sects that have never melded into a unified nation. These are much larger in number, Libya, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Bahrain, Yemen, Kuwait, Qatar, and United Arab Emirates. Freeman writes, quote, The tribes and sects that make up these more artificial states have long been held together by the iron fist of colonial powers, kings, or even military dictators. They have no, no real citizens in the modern sense of that term. Democratic rotations in power are impossible because each tribe lives by the motto, rule or die. Either my tribe or sect is in power or we're dead. Close that quote. In the more mature nations, again, Iran, Egypt, Tunisia, the populations are more modern, more homogenous, and more open to true democratic reform. The nation, at least potentially, is more important than the tribe. But in Libya or Bahrain, for example, it is difficult to determine whether the desire for democracy and the desire for my tribe taking over your tribe begins. In other words, what is really going on is a civil war between tribes, not a desire for democracy. This was the challenge in Iraq. Three tribal societies, the Sunnis in the middle, the Shiites in the south, the Kurds in the north, all fighting for control. Yemen, Syria, Bahrain, Libya are all Iraq-like civil wars in waiting. Therefore, the current situation in the Middle East is quite complicated. So may God, and this should be our prayer, may God grant our leaders wisdom in determining what is truly a push for democracy and what is really a tribal civil war. One suspects that some of the things going on in Libya today are much more tribal in their orientation than a true desire for democracy. Time will tell. And the West and NATO and the United States and President Obama need great wisdom in discerning how they deal with what looks like a tribal civil war. Second, 
What are the viable options for these nations in conflict? Wall Street Journal columnist Daniel Henninger correctly identifies three options. The first is what he calls Gaddafiism, the stability of the fist. The second is the enforcements of Islam. And the last, and what I think we would all agree is the most desirable, economic modernity. If Gaddafi survives in Libya, we will see brutal repression and slaughter of those who opposed him. This is standard now in Iran, as we all know, but it has been the standard in Syria, where the Assad family, currently in power in Syria, in 1982, for example, slaughtered its opponent in what's called the Hama massacre. Absolutely brutal. If Gaddafi survives in Libya, this repressive model of stability will no doubt spread throughout North Africa and into the Middle East. But if Gaddafiism does not survive, perhaps pre-modern Islam might replace it. What do I mean by that? Well, a repressive rule by a radical group of Muslim clerics could replace the dictators like Mubarak and Gaddafi. That is the real fear of the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, for example. The challenge for the people of these nations would be that they are merely exchanging a brutal dictator for a group of intolerant, ruthless Muslim clerics, and one only needs to witness Iran for evidence of that. Currently in North Africa and the Middle East, there are 11 separate nations experiencing some kind of insurrection. It is a significant opportunity for these nations to either engage modernism or fall back into some form of medieval Islam. Dealing with employment issues, which currently are quite high in most of these nations. Dealing with governmental corruption. Dealing with the issues that go with stupidity in some of these countries of nationalizing core economic institutions. All must be replaced with forward-thinking financial and economic leaders who see economic growth as the engine driving social and political change in these Middle Eastern nations. In terms of long-run stability, economic modernization offers the most hope. Europe and the United States, therefore, must do everything they can to ensure that this third option at least has a chance of success. There are not many success models in the Middle East, but these 11 nations experiencing some form of insurrection offer a strategic opportunity for economic modernization. So our prayer should be that God would grant his common grace in this region of the world. Finally, before I leave this first perspective, let me say a word about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Its influence is growing. Once banned by the Egyptian government, the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt is at the forefront, transformed into a tacit partner with the military government of Egypt. As the best organized and most extensive opposition movement in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood has had an edge in the contest for influence. The military seems to be using the Brotherhood to foster stability within the nation. 
But many fear the Brotherhood as an elitist secret society that would be detrimental to the new Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood is advising the new Prime Minister, Issam Sharaf, and a member of the Brotherhood was just appointed to the committee that drafted amendments to the Constitution. The people of Egypt just voted to accept that by a majority of 77%. If the Brotherhood gains increasing power in the new state of Egypt, is its intent to establish an Islamic state of Egypt? Perhaps, but Egypt has a significant number of Coptic Christians, and it has granted women rather significant rights and freedom, which would be in jeopardy under an extreme Islamic state. Many questions remain about the role the Muslim Brotherhood is playing and will play in the new Egypt. But we do know that its influence is now the greatest it has been in modern Egypt. We should be praying that the Muslim Brotherhood will not attain significant power in the new Egypt. The Middle East is in the throes of significant change. As I mentioned twice in this perspective, 11 nations across North Africa and into the Middle Eastern countries are undergoing some form of insurrection, some group of rebellious citizenry rising up against the state. Three options. We're either going to see the repressive state like Gaddafi in Libya win and repress and violently put down an insurrection. We're going to see some form of Islamic dictatorship emerge. That's a second option. Or we're going to see, thirdly, some kind of democratic economic modernization emerge. They're the only three options in the Middle East. And dear people, much rides on how these various insurrections are settled. This is one of the most significant periods of change in the Middle East in decades, perhaps since they were created at the end of World War I. May God give our leaders great wisdom, great discernment in how to deal with all that's going on in this part of the world. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think about a theme that is very much a part of Issues in Perspective, the articulation and the defense of the Christian worldview. That worldview is discerned from a study of the Bible and the application of that worldview to life. Two recent studies validate the biblical viewpoint about the Christian worldview. First of all, it's intriguing to me the population imbalance emerging in Asia, especially in China. According to the United Nations, there are far more men than women on planet Earth. That gender gap is especially pronounced in Asia, where there are 100 million more men than women. Now, parenthetically, this might be a surprise to those of us who live in the West, because in the West, women outnumber men significantly. More about that in a moment. But the historian Neal Ferguson points out, in many Asian societies, girls are less well looked after than boys because they are economically undervalued. 
the kind of domestic work they typically do is seen as less important than paid work done by men. And of course, early marriage and minimal birth control together expose them to the risks of multiple pregnancies. If it were not for selective abortion, for infanticide and economic discrimination, women would virtually equal men in Asia, but they don't. There is now an imbalance between the genders, with again 100 million more men than women. Indeed, this gender gap is expected to widen because there is a cultural preference for sons over daughters, and ultrasound technology enables families to gender select their children. If a wife is pregnant with a girl, abort, or even commit infanticide after the baby is born to ensure in this supposedly one-child family society they're trying to build, that one child is a man. Interestingly, one American feminist, her name is Marianne Warren, has called this practice in Asia gender-side. This practice of gender-selecting children is rampant in northwestern India and throughout much of China. According to the American Enterprise Institute demographer Nicholas Eberstadt, there are in China today 123 male children for every 100 females up to the age of four. In these provinces, Jingxi, Guangdong, Hainan, Anhui provinces, boys outnumber baby girls by 30% or more. This means that by the time Chinese newborns reach adulthood, there will be a chronic shortage of potential spouses. Ferguson reports that according to the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, one in five young men will be brideless. With the age group 20 to 39, there will be 22 million more men than women. Imagine 10 cities the size of Houston populated exclusively by young men. History teaches us when that there is such a radical gender imbalance in favor of males, there's significant domestic instability, growing crime, and potential militarism. Such a youth bulge in Japan helped produce, it didn't completely explain it, but it helped produce the atmosphere, the emergence of Japanese imperialism, which led, of course, to World War II. It would also seem logical that such an imbalance in males in Asia will result in increased homosexuality. When humanity attempts to manipulate and control, as in gender selection, social disaster usually follows. That is what we are witnessing in Asia today. And that validates the biblical worldview where instead of trying to manipulate and control, you allow God to providentially oversee the birth of human beings. There has been throughout history roughly a balance that always is maintained. But when humans try to manipulate and control for their own selfish ends, social disaster results. That is what we are seeing in Asia. And incidentally, and coincidentally, that is also what we're seeing in the West, where you have a ba- imbalance of females and males in just the opposite direction. A second area where I see the Christian worldview validated is in the area of prenatal life. 
in Scripture, the value of prenatal life is a given. And of course, I think of Psalm 139 and especially verse 16. The Bible declares forcefully and categorically that life in the womb is of infinite value and worth to God. That is why abortion and all forms of manipulation of the fetus are so despicable. Recently, several studies done on the connection between fetal life and adult health issues prove that cancer, heart disease, obesity, and depression, for example, can all be traced to the nine months we spend in our mother's womb. There is a straight-line connection between prenatal life and adulthood. The kind and quantity of nutrition we receive in the womb, for example, the pollutants, drugs, and infections we are exposed to during gestation, our mother's health, her stress level, the state of mind she had while she was pregnant are all factors that shape each and every one of us as a baby, as a child, and even into adulthood. Here is a summary in a series of reports published in Time magazine of what in the profession is now called fetal links. One, heart disease. Individuals weighing less at birth have a higher risk of heart disease later in life than those of normal birth weight, perhaps in part because an undernourished fetus diverts nutrients to the brain, giving short shrift to the developing heart. Two, obesity. Mothers who gain excessive weight during pregnancy tend to have heavier toddlers. The link is more than genetic. Kids conceived after a mother's successful weight loss surgery, for example, were 52% less likely to be obese than siblings born while she was overweight. Perhaps most importantly, diabetes. A diabetic mother's high blood sugar may disrupt the metabolism of a fetus, predisposing it to diabetes later in life. Schizophrenia. Studies have suggested that women who are pregnant during historical periods of stress or famine give birth to offspring who are more likely than those born in calmer times to develop schizophrenia in young adulthood. Also, maternal malnutrition may disrupt neural development, which could lead to mental health issues later in life. Finally, depression. This is perhaps quite remarkable when it comes to mental health issues. Research now shows that increased rates of premature delivery and low birth weight among babies born to depressed women is increasing. Scientists are also discovering possible links between a mother's mood and a fetus's sensitivity to stress, perhaps even the temperaments the fetus develops after uh, the birth. What we are saying is that the value of life begins in the womb. God has said this all along through his revealed word, word, that the prenatal life, the life growing in a mother's womb, is infinite worth to him. It's value to him. It's important to him. The mother's physical and mental health, therefore, have a direct bearing on the physical and mental health of her child. What the Bible stresses again and again and again is that life is a continuum that stretches from conception on into eternity. And each stage along that continuum is of value and importance to God. Modern science is now validating that important point. 
We look at life as Christians. The Christian worldview establishes quite clearly and actually quite categorically that life is a continuum. And I believe, using Psalm 139, verse 16, for example, that life does begin at conception. And the Bible says it goes on into eternity because both the unregenerate and the regenerate will live forever. Its destination is determined by faith, but they will live forever. They are immortal. So that's a very important point. God looks at life along that continuum, and every stage of its development is very, very important to him. And so we are now learning, and it's validated by some of the science I just summarized, that life in the fetus helps to determine the kind of life you're going to live physically and mentally after your birth, going all the way into adulthood. It matters. The Bible has declared for over 3,000 years that life is a continuum. Modern science continues to develop, continues to validate, and continues to show how critically important it is that we in this postmodern culture affirm the same proposition, that life is a continuum and of infinite worth and value to God all along that continuum. In our final perspective on the program today, I want to share just a brief thought about Oprah Winfrey. Perhaps one of the most influential women in America today remains Oprah Winfrey. Her show is now history, but she's founded her own network and her influence will hardly diminish in our culture. Through her programs, through her book club, and just her presence, Oprah Winfrey has become a powerful cultural influence in America. She advocates a new age worldview and has popularized strange unorthodox viewpoints in the interest of her new age proclivities. Dr. Carl Truman, who's from Westminster Theological Seminary, argues whether Oprah is a cause or a symptom or something of both, there is no doubt that she is a sign of the times and of the wider culture. The gospel of redemption through therapeutic public self-disclosure is her stock and trade. The truth, if you like, is not out there, but within each person, she would say. That is the constant message of her shows, and it accounts for the vast number of phrases such as, be true to yourself. I just know in my heart that this is true, or their equivalents that appear on her program. For Oprah Winfrey, redemption comes from public disclosure of the self, of the person on national TV. Oprah may be gone, but the soap opera plotline that she exemplified and promoted lives on in our society. Oprah Winfrey embodies the postmodern embrace of autonomy, where the self defines reality and truth. There are no absolutes. There are no universal standards. The raw individualism and autonomy that she lived and preached has produced a culture that sounds hauntingly familiar. Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. In such a culture, freedom and rights are boundless because the individual defines them. At the end of the day, such an ethic is supremely self-destructive, and that is the culture that Oprah Winfrey helped create, a self-destructive culture of pure autonomy, raw individualism that seeks its own goals, its own fulfillment, 
where there are no universal absolutes, there are no universal truths. That is a part of the legacy of Oprah Winfrey. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.